Well, good morning, everyone, and, and welcome to our Thursday morning theme talk. First, we'll light the chance. I like this symbol of our free faith. May its warmth bring light to our lives today. O spinner, weaver of our lives, your loom is love. May we who are gathered here be empowered by that love to weave new patterns of truth and justice into a web of life that is strong, beautiful, and everlasting. Let it be so. Our prayer of worship today are words from the great Sufi poet and mystic Rumi. There is a force within which gives you life. Seek that. O wandering Sufi, if you are in search of the greatest treasure, don't look outside. Look within and seek that. And our first hymn this morning is hymn 139 from your purple books. Um. It's hymn 139, Sacred the Body, Sacred the Body God Has Created. 139. themselves. Once upon a time, there were four little birds. 
They were growing up fast. They'd grown lovely feathers. But one thing they'd never done was sing. Until one day, these four little birds... These four little birds with lovely feathers growing up fast, suddenly they got a funny feeling inside themselves. And the feeling grew and grew and grew. And suddenly they just, it just came out. And it came out again even louder. And their two aunties were visiting. And they said, that's not how little birds chirp, that's wrong. And the little birds felt a little bit sad. But they recovered, and a bit later, they chirped again. And even louder. And all their cousins were visiting, and their cousins said, that's not how little birds chirp. That's all wrong. You're doing it wrong. And guess what? The little birds felt terribly sad. Can't you see how sad they look? And for a long time they were very sad. And they didn't chirp anymore. Until one day they saw their old friends, the two wise owls, who had Two wise owls asked the, the little birds, what's wrong? And the little birds said, we're very sad. <laughs> and the old wise owls got a little bit closer and said to them, where do you feel that sadness deep right down inside yourself? And the little bird said, we think we feel it right down in here. And the owl said, go down deep into your body and see if you can just stay with that hurt. Just be with that sadness. Just stay there with it like I'm getting close to you. And the two owls moved even closer. And they said, just stay with that sadness and comfort it like we're comforting you with our big wings. <laughs> and after a little while the little birds started to feel a bit better. And that they told the owls they were feeling a bit better. Are you feeling a bit better? And they nodded to the owls. <coughs> And the owl said to them, well, whenever you feel sad again, just go down inside yourself into that sad, hurt place in your body and be with it. And they said, just remember that. But now we're going to go off. But if ever you need us again, just call and we'll come back. And the two wise owls flew away. <laughs> And suddenly the little birds got a new feeling inside themselves. And it started welling up. And once again they went out, chirp, very loudly. <laughs> and all their aunties and cousins said, that's not how you chirp, that's wrong. But the little birds just went, <laughs> They didn't care anymore. Chirping and chirping like that until one day they got another funny feeling inside. And the feeling welled up and welled up. And suddenly, instead of chirps, there was the most beautiful song. Can you do that, birds? Cousins came along and said, Wow, how did 
you learn to sing so beautifully and wonderfully? We've never heard anything so wonderful. And the little birds felt very proud, but they kept their secret to themselves, and they were happy ever after that, and they continued to sing beautifully. Thank you very much, little birds. And the little birds will leave us now. Thank you all to the Hucklow players once again. Well, our reading this morning is another, it was a poem from Rumi called The Guest House, and it will be read for us by Gillian. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of all its furniture, still treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you very much, Gillian. Well, we now come to my theme talk for today. And you've heard four elements this morning that form the basis of the talk, which I have entitled Body Wisdom, or Learning from the Wisdom of the Body. And I hope I'll show that this body knowledge is vital for walking the talk with integrity, our summer school theme this year at Great Hucklow. As I say, you've heard the four elements uh, that form the basis of my talk already, and what are these? Well, first, there was the prayer poem of Rumi's, urging us to seek the force within that gives us life the precious jewel in our own bodies, our greatest treasure. There was the hymn about our bodies being sacred, how we should treat flesh as holy, that love may abide, and honour each story and song. Also the children's story about the little birds growing up, developing their own sense of self-worth, their unique selfhood, their own expression of chirps to song. The little birds learnt through going into their bodies and gently accompanying their inner hurt. And finally then, the, the Rumi poem, The Guest House, where he tells us to welcome all feelings that come to us, including the darker ones, perhaps especially the darker ones, the crowd of sorrows, the shame, the malice. We should accept them with gratitude, treat them honourably, entertain them. Why? Well, he says, they may be clearing us out for some new delight, and each has been sent as a guide from beyond. A guide to what exactly? Well, let's see if we can find a way of bringing these four elements together today, of understanding them a bit more, and how they might relate. Firstly, though, perhaps I should explain briefly what led me to this subject. I joined the Unitarians eight years ago, I think as many of you know, as an agnostic and spiritual seeker, after a previous life as an atheist. And I was delighted to find a faith where I was free to explore, and I did with enthusiasm. But after a few years, I felt I needed more depth. 
So I explored Sufism for a while, and then mystical Christianity. And this led me to Ignatian spirituality. In turn, this led me to the Jesuits in Mayfair in central London, who guided me through the full Ignatian spiritual exercises in daily life over one year. Ignatian spirituality is the mystical path developed by the founder of the Jesuits, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, in the early 16th century. By the way, I found the Jesuits very liberal. They said I only needed two things to undertake the exercises. A concept of God, even if that was something just within myself, and an ability to explore metaphor. And I was able, I found, to enter into the exercises. But I was to find that the metaphors began to develop a power of their own. I hope to return to this point towards the end. Now I'm studying spiritual direction with the Anglican Diocese of London, a two-year course, a most ecumenical one, while I complete my Unitarian ministry studies at Oxford. So as you can imagine, I feel I owe my spiritual formation to the Unitarians firstly, but also to the wider Christian community. And my topic today, learning from the body, is one of the many spiritual disciplines I've learnt about through my course in spiritual direction. And it's one I felt particularly drawn to, for reasons I hope I'll explain. This is a fairly recent discovery of mine. I'm not a great expert on the subject, but I found it the, the, the spiritual discipline that I'll talk about today and explore a bit and tell you about. I found quite recently, I've only attended a few weekends doing it, but I found it very powerful, and I think it tells us quite a few things, which I hope to share with you. The founder and pioneer of the method of body awareness I'll be exploring is the American philosopher and psychotherapist Eugene Gendlin. And I've got books of his, and this evening I'll have some of the books available this afternoon at the talk back, but I even have some of them here now. He says, learning from our bodies is about more than simply being aware of our feelings and emotions, vital though this is. Nor is it about feeling ourselves in isolation at a particular time. Rather, Gendlin writes, your physically felt body is in fact part of a gigantic system of here and other places, now and other times, you and other people. In fact, it's part of the whole universe. This sense of being bodily alive in a vast system is the body as it is felt from inside. So he seems to be saying that this felt knowledge of being alive in a vast system, we Unitarians might like to call this the interdependent web of all existence, to quote the UUA principle. He seems to be saying that this is understood, known in our bodies rather than our minds. Eugene Gendlin calls this knowledge the felt sense. That is understanding felt in our bodies in our bones, as it were, rather than thought out through our minds. So what exactly is a felt sense? Well, I'd like us just quickly to do an exercise. If you could sit still, close your eyes, <coughs> relaxed but upright, now think, if you would, just take a moment to pause and be quiet. Close your eyes if you like. Now think of someone you love. A very close friend, partner, child, perhaps a parent or grandparent. Just fix on one person now, if you would, and bring them, bring that person into your consciousness. Imagine yourself with them here, holding them by the hand looking into their eyes and just feel your love for them for that person 
and notice how that feels in your body. Right, let that one go gently. And now I want you to imagine something different. I want you to imagine someone you don't like, but not someone you hate, not someone you absolutely hate, not your worst enemy. Someone who does nothing for you, or someone you simply find irritating. Perhaps a member of your congregation. Oh no, we're Unitarians, we all love each other. Perhaps a neighbour then, or someone at work. Just someone you don't much like. Now fix on that person. Imagine you're with them here. In your consciousness, you're seeing them. And note now how this feels in your body. Right, I'd like to bring this to a close now. If you could just um, return gradually. How did those two states feel within your body? Did you feel the difference? Did it feel a different body sense? There was a different felt sense to the quality of your thoughts in fact, your feelings about that person. It was experienced in the body. And this is what Gendlin means by a felt sense. It's not an intellectual thing. You actually know it in your body. This example helps us, I hope, to understand what Gendlin means by the felt sense, a knowledge we feel inside. Note, though, that Gendlin makes big claims for this knowledge. In the quote you heard earlier, it's more than just an emotion. It opens the way to understanding ourselves in relation to others and our world. In fact, in relation to the whole universe, a kind of intrinsic knowing of everything. But it's the contention of Gendlin and other writers on this subject, particularly two Jesuit priests and religious psychologists, Edwin McMahon and Peter Campbell, that in modern times we've come to rely more and more on our minds to acquire knowledge and have become increasingly out of touch with our bodies and our unique body sense. We've become out of sync with our bodies, so much so that we need to relearn, they contend, how to listen to our bodies. These religious psychologists, McMahon and Campbell, argue that metaphor, myth, and symbol show us a way of connecting with body wisdom. Ancient Hebrew teachers, they say, realized that to communicate the word of God to an illiterate people, they had to reach deep within the body's knowing. They quote the writer Joseph Campbell, who argued that metaphor was central to Western spirituality, to our Judeo-Christian heritage, but that this has not always been well understood. They quote Campbell as saying, failure to appreciate the metaphorical nature of religious literature has led to embarrassing expeditions to defend the biblical accounts of creation. People mount expensive expeditions to locate the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, but of course they never find it. The Ark, however, can be found easily and without travel by those who understand that it is a mythological vessel in an extraordinary story whose point is not historical documentation but spiritual enlightenment. To appreciate Genesis as myth is not to destroy that book but to discover again its spiritual vitality and relevance. The psychologists argue that metaphor is central to both creative thinking and our spiritual lives but we are losing touch with the power of symbol and myth. Too many people, they say, find themselves in a psycho-spiritual vacuum. Our sense of independence, I'm quoting it still, our sense of interdependence with all that sustains life on this earth 
disappears beneath a wave of unsettling and addictive diversion so perceptively identified by Alcoholics Anonymous as endless talking, as endless talking the talk without ever walking the walk. Note, by the way, that they call it walking the walk, or walking the walk. <laughs> Initially, I was using that phrase throughout my, my talk, and then I realized, no, the theme talk, the, our theme is actually walking the talk. I'm not quite sure of the difference, but they both sound good. <laughs> well, if this analysis is correct of how much we've lost touch with this um, power to understand myth through our bodies. This is not a problem to be solved as though we stand apart from it. It is not to be found out there, the solution, but rather within ourselves. And so the solution, for the solution, we need to look within. The psychologists say this will not be understood through explanation, but rather it has to be developed through attending to what our body knows. We need, they say, to notice and nurture what our bodies have to tell us about the larger body in which we all live. Or as St. Paul was quoted as saying in Acts, in the larger divinity in which we live and move and have our being. Thus a new way of learning is needed, one which includes body knowledge. The American psychologist Dr. Carl Rogers called the integration of body understanding congruence. But it was developed into a teaching process by Eugene Gendlin, who called the method he developed of paying attention to our bodies focusing. And McMahon and Campbell call it biospiritual focusing. Well, of course, paying attention to our bodies must involve, in the first instance, opening ourselves up to our feelings, including the difficult and painful ones. We so often repress these feelings. We develop a numbness that covers them over, keeps them out of range of our conscious minds. And this, I think, is most of all true of me, although it's probably true of many of us. But this, in fact, was one of the prime reasons I found this method of this spiritual discipline so, um, so attractive. We then, through numbing our feelings, we turn our negative feelings into enemies. And then they gnaw away at us inside. So how do we get in touch with our darker feelings? Well, first, as Rumi says in his poem, The Guest House, we have to acknowledge them, welcome them. Why is this so important? Well, Gendlin, McMahon, and Campbell all say when we acknowledge our feelings, when we allow them and the stories they contain to be heard, then how they feel within our bodies begins to change. Muscles and breathing become loosened, and physically felt pain diminishes, rather than staying stuck, tight, and hurting. As you notice and nurture your feelings, so the relationship, the interaction with your important feelings changes. The limbic brain resonates and responds to our own caring presence. And this message of caring appears to be communicated to every cell in our body as a signal to live and grow in a healthy way. I'm going to do a second example with you in a minute, um, a second uh, sort of meditation on, on, on and, and try and actually do briefly the whole, uh, the discipline of body awareness but it's very similar to what the little birds were doing but has a few more steps and one of the steps is when you locate a hurt part in your body you actually ask it if it's alright to come and be with it you actually ask that part of your body is it okay funnily enough um, I found the power of this quite recently when I had if, if I can call it a difficult in-law situation and some in-laws were coming to visit with a, and a very tense relationship at that time between me and them. And I, um, I used this method, which I'd just been learning, 
And I asked my body, which I felt great anxiety and tension here in this point in my throat and down in, in, the, in this part of my chest. And I said, is it all right to come there and just be there? And the answer was no, because I was just so... This was you know, minutes before the people arrived, and I was just so freaked out about it. And um, the... Uh, but then the advice is just to stay with that feeling of no, just to stay with that feeling that you don't want to be with it, just to be there with it. And I did that. I, or I, I didn't go to that place in my body, but I stayed with me saying, no, it's not all right. And I just accompanied that gently. And the difference once they arrived was really remarkable. I, my tension, all that feeling had gone, even though I didn't accompany it but I accompanied the fact that I didn't want to accompany it. And it had that effect. And I hope we can feel a little bit of that a bit later when we do the exercise, although it will be very short. Interestingly, though, medical and scientific researchers have, have supported the arguments advanced by these psychologists. The medical researcher Henry, Henry Lodge writes... Startling new images from MRI and PET scans show that emotion is at the physical center of our brains. Emotion is not nature's afterthought. It is one of the master regulators of health and happiness in every corner of the body. You have trillions of emotional signals moving around your brain every day. You can't shut emotions off. Like it or not, you're an emotional animal. It's as much part of you as breathing. And he goes on, Lodge goes on a bit later, to discuss the beneficial effect exercise has on the body. And he says the other master signal to ourselves, this is a bit later, he says the other master signal to ourselves, equal and in some respects even more important than exercise, is emotion. One of the most fascinating revelations of the last decade is that emotions change our cells through the same molecular pathways as exercise. Emotions such as anger, stress and loneliness are signals for starvation and chronic danger. They melt our bodies as surely as sedentary living. Optimism, love and community trigger the process of growth, building our bodies hearts and minds. Deep in our cells, down at the level of molecular genetics, we are wired to exercise and to care. So being in community benefits us right into our cells. Lodge has also written, love, friendship and community can't be written out on a prescription pad, but they should be. We are a vital part of a larger community, a larger body. And the psychologists McMahon and Campbell point out that some early Christian evangelists and mystics, particularly St. John and the Apostle Paul, seemed very aware of this reality for healthy spirituality. God describes, uh, sorry, John describes God as a loving presence, a special kind of loving presence, agape, an open, flowing love. Paul calls us living cells within the body of the whole Christ, filled with his spirit, so that change, transformation, is possible. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, Hence I am content for Christ's sake, with weakness, contempt, persecution, hardship and frustration, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Note that Paul reaches for the same paradox as Rumi. In his weakness, he says, he is given strength. He is strong. They both seem to be saying that through acceptance of our weaknesses, we are able to find strength within the greater body in which we live, the interdependent web of all existence, the body of God or of Christ, as Paul says, all metaphors for that greater reality in which we live So where does this take us? Well, a useful summary of what 
they call the six fundamentals of body knowing is provided by McMahon and Campbell. First, they say, more than half our knowledge is learned from our body's ability to know rather than our mind's capacity to think. They say as a species we have barely begun to recognize the potential of what our bodies can teach us if only we could learn how to listen to them. Secondly, every good coach knows, they say, that students learn swimming or any other sport, typing, singing, dance, carpentry, from the body feel of doing it correctly. The student must enter directly into the process of learning from their own bodies. I remember, when I was reading this, I remembered examples from my own life, which seemed to go back, you know, before these books were written, where... Um, and, and, and of course this knowledge is not new when you were exercising you were told to focus on the muscle you were exercising that that attention would actually help the process if you had a headache stay with the headache if you had a hangover and a bad headache stay with the headache concentrate, give attention to that headache and it lessens you may have your own examples but we all know that role play for the big interview uh, you're advised to do that because it gives you a real body sense of being there. Riding a bike, driving a car, you have to learn how to do it with your body. Thirdly, your body has a unique way of knowing, which is quite different from any thinking, re analyzing, or, reason, or reasoning. Your body spontaneously senses the relational whole of a situation or, experiencing, or experience, embracing the entire interacting web as well as each part. Your body knows in one great gulp, while our minds must process each bit of knowledge at a time. Our human species has been blessed, they say, with two entirely different ways of knowing, mental and with our whole being. Note that with our whole being doesn't exclude the mind. This never excludes the mind. The whole body includes the head. But it's a knowledge that comes up from here. Our sense of this body knowledge we call intuition, gut feeling, a hunch. This is deep knowledge that, can, that often can't be put into words at the time. Our brains haven't caught up. This body knowledge also includes creativity, inspiration, revelation, and the wisdom that comes from experience of life. Extraordinarily, this morning, I'd set my alarm clock for ten past six, and I woke up a bit earlier, but then I dozed off again. But at eight minutes to six, I leapt up, grabbed the alarm clock, and stopped the thing going off. My body knew what the time was. I hadn't looked at the clock. And I think we all sometimes get a sense of that. The body has that extraordinary knowledge, you know, down to the last minute of time. Fourthly, they say, the ancient Greeks recognized at least five different kinds of knowledge. Scientific knowing, wisdom, opinion, faith, and an esoteric experience called gnosis. Among the five, only scientific knowing refers to informational knowledge. Oh, sorry. Um, five different kinds of knowledge so the, the ancient Greeks knew of. Scientific knowing, wisdom, opinion, faith, and an es esoteric experience called gnosis. Gnosis. Among the five, only scientific knowing refers to informational knowledge in the mind. The other four point to special ways of knowing in your whole body. Fifthly, and this relates to the Rumi poem, The Guest House, everyday feelings, emotions and physical sensations represent an important first step into the world of felt body connections. All feelings, whether positive or negative, express an important part of your body's intelligence because they introduce you to the deeper meaning, felt meanings at work in your life. Finally, basic human goodness and a positive sense of self are learned through our bodies. That's why it's so important for a child to feel loved, to be loved, surrounded by love. This is what parents do for their children. 
and the ethical and religious connections we make in later life are about feeling ourselves within a greater whole, a greater good, a greater love. When we're out of tune with our bodies, this affects everything. What we say, what we do, how we feel, how we behave, and how we are. The Irish poet W.B. Yeats expressed this powerfully, expressed this deeper knowledge powerfully in A Prayer for Old Age. God guard me from those thoughts men think in the mind alone. He that sings a lasting song thinks it in the marrow bone. Note that Yeats says, thinks it in the marrow bone. He's talking about more than just feeling. This is real thinking. But in the, the quote, or God, God, guard me from those thoughts men think in the mind alone. He that sings a lasting song thinks it in the marrow bone. He's saying, thinks it in the marrow bone. It's more than just feeling. It's, this is real thinking. But in the marrow of our bones, not just in our heads. Not just in our heads. But we've been talking about the importance of noticing and nurturing our feelings. So now I'd like to try a second exercise to see how we might do this in the process that Gendlin calls focusing. Um, if anybody would like a little wriggle, just stand up and um, stretch a little bit. you to sit comfortably again. You don't have to put your feet down, just however you feel comfortable. And sit comfortably with your eyes closed. Now let your awareness move down into the center of your body. Let your awareness go down into your body. Bring your awareness there, down there. And notice what you feel. Now the notes say, get in touch with an experience of desolation, of sadness. Now I know there's a sadness in our community at the moment for a very loved member. Um, maybe because this is going to be a very short exercise you might not want to feel that sadness because in the short time we have, perhaps it's not a good idea to go into a very strong sadness. But think of a sadness or worry you have about something else. And feel, you can feel this if you think you can handle it, but we can only have a short time, I'm afraid, because I'm just giving a taster. But just feel that hurt or if you don't want to do that, an alternative is just feel where there's some tension in your body, in your neck perhaps, in your shoulders. Now, ask yourself if you want to listen to this part of yourself right now. Ask that part of yourself. This is like a wounded animal you're talking to, some hurt bit, some tense bit. Ask that part whether it's okay to spend time with it right now. If not, care for the feeling of not wanting to spend time with it right now. So just ask that part of your body, is it okay? If not, stay with the, part, the, 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 the not wanting to do it. But if it is okay to spend some time with this area, take a few moments to create a loving atmosphere where it will feel safe to speak to you. So around it, create a loving atmosphere. Now let yourself down into how this whole thing feels inside you. 
Is it an ache in your chest, a lump in your throat, and not in your stomach? Care for this pain in your heart. Care for this feeling. Perhaps even put your hand on it if you want to. Just care for the feeling. But don't try and fix it. Just be with it. It's very important not to try and fix it. Just be with it. Stay there with it. Like the owl and the little bird. Just be next to it. Accompany it gently. If you wish, ask God, as you understand God, to come and help you care for it. Now just stay there, gently being with that hurt, that stiffness. to move out but stay with stay with that part of your body and gently tell that part of your body that you'll come back again at another time you might have neglected it for a long time but you promise that you'll do this again and come back to that part that hurt part that stiff part of your body Stay with it as you're telling that part of your body that. And then slowly leave it and gently come back into the room. And as you end, Notice how that feels in your body compared to when you began. Are you carrying the issue a bit differently? Perhaps you are. It's very short. But I hope that it's given you some, just some sense of what it is this discipline or exercise is about. And I have copy of this exercise this afternoon or even here if you want to look at it well thank you and I hope that hasn't been difficult or too difficult for any of you but just take a few moments to recover and, and I see Sue who's just heard her daughter's exam results GCSE results do you want to tell us Sue Give Thanks for sharing that, Sue. That's great news. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, that's a great joy to lift us from uh, sadnesses and stiff joints. Thank you, Sue. <clears throat> so I hope that changed a little bit the way the feeling felt in your body. And interestingly, Gendlin, who I say makes large claims for this method basically says that psychotherapy often doesn't work because it's just a recycling of emotions, that people don't actually do that. They don't go into, or often don't. Funnily enough, he said from videotapes of watching people in psychotherapy, they could spot the ones who were going to get better because they were able to go quiet and go into their bodies and accompany the pain they were feeling rather than just endlessly recycling it. Um, yeah, Gendlin contends that getting in touch with our bodies, our feelings, 
noticing and nurturing them, but not trying to fix them, changes these feelings. And I want to give you very briefly an experience of an awareness walk I did, which I hope gives an example of, of this point. Uh, this was in my spiritual direction. I was asked to do an awareness walk between the two weekly sessions and given some tips on how to do that. I had also, I was in the middle of a focusing weekend, tr- trying out this process, intensive weekend, doing it for two days. So my awareness walk started well with an awareness of sun, light, trees, earth. And it was a bright sunny day in the morning. I felt I was encountering God in all things. And I kept repeating the prayer, God be in my heart and in my understanding. However, I soon realized, which is a great and continuing fault of mine, that I'd retreated into my head. My thoughts were dominating. I was worrying about problems about work. I noticed how tense my body had become, even though I was on this beautiful awareness walk on this beautiful day. Beginning with my neck and shoulders, where I always begin my tension. And I tried to return to the prayer and the beauty around me, but I would find after a while I'd be back in my head, worrying and tense. I then thought I should just give some gentle attention through focusing, through just a, a quick mental process, really, or physical process, to the tense parts of my body, just staying with them, accompanying them. So as I walked, I focused on my neck first, and then the other tense parts of my body. This gentle attention brought relaxation, and I began to feel more in tune with my surroundings, freer in my body, less tense. And it led to a feeling of self-acceptance. Suddenly, I realized that the tension, the worry, was part of me. I could let go of it, but it would never disappear. In fact, my whole past, the good, the bad, was part of me, was me. I couldn't disown it. I had to accept it. All the terrible mistakes I've made in my life, the embarrassing, awful mistakes, were not not me. They were me. They were part of me. All the things I'd done wrong, all my faults, which I tried, the things I tried to hide from others, the parts of myself, they weren't not really me. They were me. They were absolutely part of me. They weren't aberrations. They were me. And they would always be me and with me. This revelation helped me feel freer. I felt it was a God-given insight. But oddly enough, in the days that followed, I continued to feel freer quite often. And I began to notice some little shifts. I began to feel I could change, or some of the parts of me could change. And this is beautifully expressed by Anthony de Mello, this paradox, that when you realize you're not going to change, and that you're absolutely stuck as you are, and that you accept that, oddly enough, that allows a change. Anthony de Mello's little piece is called, the spiritual writer Anthony de Mello, I assume many of you know him, Don't Change. He writes, I was a neurotic for years. I was anxious and depressed and selfish. Everyone kept telling me to change. I resented them, and I agreed with them, and I wanted to change, but I simply couldn't, no matter how hard I tried. What hurt the most was that, like the others, my best friend kept insisting that I change. So I felt powerless and trapped. Then one day he said to me, don't change. I love you just as you are. The words were music to my ears. Don't change. Don't change. Don't change. I love you as you are. I relaxed. I came alive. And suddenly, I changed. 
Now I know that I couldn't really change until I found someone who would love me, whether I changed or not. So that's Anthony DeMello. So self-acceptance. Now we can see what Rumi meant, what Paul meant about finding strength through weakness. Because for the first time, or I realized that, I felt able to move beyond negative feelings. Acknowledge, acknowledging them made it possible. When we're in denial about our real feelings, we're never able to change them. Of course, I don't claim to have permanently overcome my negative feelings. Life's more complicated than that. Or my faults and my weaknesses and my ability to, uh, to do terrible things and make, make terrible mistakes. So where does this leave us? Well, focusing is one way of accessing body wisdom. And I don't believe in magic bullets. I found it powerful. But there, it is not the only way. And it draws on a, on, on a knowledge and a wisdom that, of course, goes back uh, it, it, throughout human history. It can also be found in, in all religions, in Hinduism, Judaism, and Christianity. Uh, through their beliefs and practices, their prayer and sacraments and rituals, which involve our bodies as well as our minds. This surely is true too of contemplative spiritual paths, where our imagination, feelings, senses come into play, where we move beyond thinking about God to experiencing that greater or ultimate reality within our very beings. Well, where do Unitarians fit into this? Unfortunately, we have a reputation for being rather cerebral. Perhaps it's a well-earned reputation. As I pointed out earlier, I learned about mysticism and about a variety of spiritual practices through contact with the wider Christian family. And I think we can learn lessons from this. When we Unitarians opened up to diverse beliefs several decades ago. This should have allowed us to explore again the great embodied mysteries of the Christian faith. But too often, perhaps, diversity seemed to mean turning our backs on Christianity, particularly mainstream Christianity. Yet this mainstream still uses metaphors which hold power for millions of people today. The Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, the resurrection... As a creedless faith, we should feel free to explore these as we explore other religions and other faiths and other paths. We sometimes say, but the Trinity is not part of our Unitarian heritage. But here too, we forget that we are also heirs to a free Christian tradition, which is still part of our name, which is different from the Unitarian Christian name. So far have we forgotten this tradition today that we tend to think it's just another name for Unitarian Christian. And in fact, it's not another name for Unitarian Christian. It refers to a different tradition which was separate from Unitarian Christian, which was often in conflict with it, and which tried to bring together or bring into our ranks Trinitarians, people who rejected labels altogether, all Christians. They tried to build a non-denominational uh, church a non-denominational Christian church at that time, but all the Unitarians at that time were, um, were Christian, or almost all. The free Christians wanted to build a creedless Christian church, the Church Universal, welcoming to Unitarians, Trinitarians, and those rejecting labels. Our historian Alan Rustin has referred to this division when he talked about the, the, the formation of our General Assembly in 1928 as for several decades these two wings of our movement, the Unitarian Christians and the Free Christians, were at loggerheads on, their, on the positions. Alan Rustin refers to the Unitarian Christians wanting to maintain and emphasize a distinctive theological position. Whereas the free Christians, he refers to those who saw their faith as a Catholic one in the best sense of the word, with an aim to encompass as many like-minded believers as possible. So they wanted to open up to all who were open-minded and tolerant. 
So a question I'd like to ask is this. Um, no, I'm sorry. I ha I've had to shorten part of my talk, so I'm getting a bit... Um, I'm, I'm repeating parts. <coughs> but would a wider theological inclusivity, which of course can involve other religions and other faiths, we are diverse, but would a wider theological inclusivity offer a way forward for our diverse denomination in Britain? Would it help us walk the talk more wholeheartedly? I believe it could, because we'd be embodying more fully the diversity we've talked about for so long. I'd like to end, though, on a point I think we can all agree on. It's only by opening up to our deepest feelings, by acknowledging them, accompanying them, or as Rumi puts it more joyously, greeting them, entertaining them, by acknowledging their strength, their insistence, their right to be heard, that we do hear, that we do learn, and that we and these feelings can begin to change. So let us nurture ourselves, our hurts, our, deepness, sad, our deepest sad, sadnesses, so that in turn we may nurture others. Amen. Well, we have a final hymn to get us going. And be once again beautifully played for us by Sheila. It's hymn number 14, which apparently Sheila has told me is a great favorite. Yeah, in fact, Sheila has chosen this one for me. So thank you, Sheila. It's hymn number 14, God of Many Names. Hymn number 14 in your purple books.
could remain standing for the blessing and then we will sit for Sheila's musical postlude. Be ours a religion which, like sunshine, goes everywhere. Its temple, all space. Its shrine, the good heart. Its creed, all truth. Its ritual, works of love. Its profession of faith, divine living. Amen.